Hello and welcome back to Technology Now, a weekly show from Hewlett Packard Enterprise where we take what's happening in the world and explain how it's changing the way organizations are using technology. We're your hosts, Michael Bird and Aubrey Lovell. And in this episode, we're talking about something extremely important. In fact, it's a piece of legislation which could change the tech industry for the foreseeable future, the European AI Act. We'll be looking at what exactly the act covers, we'll be asking what it means for our organizations, and we'll be exploring what it could mean for the future of AI and its offshoot technologies. So if you're the kind of person who needs to know why what's going on in the world matters to your organization, then this podcast is for you. Oh, and if you haven't already yet done so, do make sure you subscribe on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss out. Right, let's get on with it. So yeah, it's a complicated time for the world of AI right now with seemingly endless questions around copyright, piracy and legislation. We've covered the first two in this podcast before and we'll link to those episodes in the description. But it's that last question that we're looking at today, the laws around AI, and there are several in the works. The G7 group of countries are proposing a code of conduct for companies developing AI technology to help reduce its risks and misuse. Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Britain, and the United States, as well as the European Union, first talked about this at a meeting in May, which has become known as the Hiroshima AI process. The G7 have put forward an 11-point code which will focus on promoting safe and trustworthy AI practices. A caveat, though, the document isn't currently public and has only been seen by the Reuters news agency, who broke the story, which you'll find linked in the episode notes. The G7 aren't the only group trying to codify AI, though. The EU has its own AI Act, which, to quote the EU, aims to ensure AI systems used in the EU are safe, transparent, traceable, non-discriminatory, and environmentally friendly. AI systems should be overseen by people rather than by automation to prevent harmful outcomes. So in short, the EU aims to legislate what is and isn't acceptable in the world of AI. That includes banning so-called unacceptable risk AIs, which aim to influence children to dangerous behavior. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. And joining us today to explain is a friend of the podcast, Matt Armstrong Barnes, Chief Technologist at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And because this is such a hefty topic, we're going to skip the audience questions for this week and keep right on the topic of the act. That said, welcome, Matt. Good to be back. All right. So Matt, give us a little more detail on the European AI Act, basically the who, what, when, where, and why. Yeah, so it is a proposed regulatory framework for artificial intelligence, specifically in the European Union. And there are other countries that are taking a slightly different approach. So what the Act does is adopt a risk-based approach that is built to ensure that AI systems are lawful, they're safe, and they're trustworthy. So broadly, it's attempting to put in place an enforceable governance process across the EU to avoid fragmentation of the legislation and to build a single market view. And it does this to ensure that AI systems are safe and that they respect existing laws, fundamental rights, and values that are in place across the union. And it tries to achieve this in a way that both facilitates investment and innovation. One thing to bear in mind, the Centre of Innovation, which is a non-profit organisation, has suggested that investment in EU initiatives will drop by an eye-watering 31 billion euros. 
Wow. I mean, this is a heavily debated number, but it gives you an idea of the worldwide implications of bringing in AI legislation. Wow. So, Matt, why does this matter to non-EU tech companies? I mean, the three of us here, none of us are in the EU. So why should we care about it? So in a similar way that the European Union brought in GDPR, any company that wants to operate in the EU needs to be compliant. However, there is some complexity because the UK and the US and other countries are not adopting the act. They're doing their own thing. For example, the UK has taken a pro-innovation approach, which is principles-based. And the Biden administration in the US has issued an executive order around AI safety. But to give you an idea on the timescales, the executive order was only signed on the 30th of October. So AI regulation has become a global initiative. The very first AI summit happened a couple of weeks ago in Bletchley Park. And the summit is looking at key things to ensure that we responsibly scale AI solutions. And a lot of what we need to put in place is practical guidance and best practice. You know, we need to understand how to evaluate models, how we perform consistent reporting, how we look at vulnerabilities, how we make it clear the material that was used to generate the AI, and what non-AI data has been generated, who it was used by, how it was transformed, how long it was used for. There are still lots of questions that are being put in the regulatory space. And at the minute, we are seeing a level of global fragmentation that means that the complexity is becoming exponential because you need to understand the implications of all of the legislation based on where you're building your AI and which countries you're going to deploy it in. So Matt, you know, there's lots of talk right now about banning certain kinds of AI. And I think we mentioned previously around how encouraging dangerous behavior is, is a big topic right now. So what else is out there in terms of regulating that overall space? So the way the AI Act operates is it does it by categorization. And it basically forms a, a number of headline categories. So we have unacceptable risk, which are AI systems that are considered to be a threat to people and will be banned. So for example, cognitive behavioral manipulation of people or specific vulnerable groups. Things like AI scoring or real-time and remote biometric identification systems. The main example of this is facial recognition. It does get complicated because, of course, there are some exceptions, which means you can perform facial recognition if there's a delay, which means that you can use it for prosecution of serious crimes. And some of the things that the member states are still discussing is which types of AI systems will fall into which categories. What they're trying to achieve is AI systems that have negative effects on safety or fundamental rights. So this is the next category down, which is really high risk. And that breaks down into two main areas, product safety legislation. The biggest example here is autonomous vehicles and the other one falling into sort of eight main areas, things like biometrics, critical infrastructure, education, employment, public or private services, around benefits, law enforcement, immigration, asylum, border control, you know, there's quite a broad collection of categories that fall into the high risk area. And 
as we've talked about, I'm sure we've talked about on the show, you know, generative AI, again, newer technology, the legislation still needs to evolve because today it's mainly around transparency, how data was used, what data was used. And the focus of the act here is around copyright, putting in guardrails to ensure that AIs don't generate illegal content. And then right at the bottom, we really got limited risk systems. And these systems have to comply with minimal transparency requirements because even at the lower ends of the AI risk scale, we still need people to make informed decisions about the AIs that they're using. And people need to be aware that they are actually interacting with AI systems, not people. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Matt. And we'll be back with Matt in a moment for more on the European AI Act. So don't go anywhere. All right, it's time for Today I Learned, the part of the show where we take a look at something happening in the world we think you should know about. And today I've got some natural or unnatural gene splicing for you, Aubrey, because researchers in China have planted the DNA of spiders into silkworms in order to get the silkworms to produce spider silk. They use gene splicing technology known as CRISPR to create the hybrid silkworms, which are otherwise completely normal, But why? Well, it's because it is a miracle material. Spider silk is as tough as Kevlar and as strong as nylon, and it could be an incredible fabric for protective clothing and even construction materials. But there's an issue. Spiders can't be farmed. They aren't social animals, each needing their own space. Nor can their silk be easily collected and spun. In fact, just a few garments have ever been created from it. A shawl made from spider silk in the wild in the early 2000s took four years to make and involved the silk of a million naturally collected webs. 70 people were involved in its manufacture. That's clearly not sustainable. But by adapting the humble silkworm to produce spider silk, suddenly the process can be industrialized and fast. It is still early days for the technology, but as a proof of concept, it is a very, very interesting one. That is very interesting, Michael. Reminds me of a very well-known comic in the universe. Okay, so now we're going to head back to Matt Armstrong-Barnes with a couple more questions on the European AI Act. Matt, why are governments legislating it now? There's just so much buzz, it seems like, going on. As you said, there was the uh, conference last week. The G7 are talking about it. Biden administration is talking about the the EU AI Act is here. What's happening that means we're legislating for it right now? We have to bear in mind that legislation takes a long time. So the EU AI Act came in force on the 14th of June this year, but it was many, many years in development. You know, the Biden US executive order is like 60 pages. So these things have, have been worked on for a long period of time. They've been through a number of drafts. They've been through people providing input in there from academic institutions as well as from industry. So it has been something that's been evolving quite rapidly. We have to bear in mind that from a a UK perspective, our approach is much more pro-innovation. So we are still very principles-oriented with a view that we shouldn't rush into legislating this space. Just the very definition of what AI is, is still a hotly debated subject inside the AI Act. 
So there are philosophers and academics who are still saying that the act doesn't necessarily capture the essence of what an AI system is. So if we're still having those types of conversations, bringing them in and wrapping complex legislation around them is potentially a multi-year cycle. And the, the AI Act still is being negotiated by the member states in terms of the different categories. And we're also expecting a grace period from when the Act comes into force, which is expected this year, 2023. So, the, you know, the clock is really ticking on this. But there's going to be a grace period before it becomes enforceable. So you can still build AI systems as you want to today with a view that some of the compliance regimes won't kick in for another 12 months or potentially longer. So Matt, I'm really curious, what has been the reaction in the industry so far to the act? What have you seen? So I think legislation is a really important thing. Unfortunately, there's still quite a lack of understanding about what the EUAR Act or wider legislation means. And unfortunately, a lot of that expertise is lying in large organizations who have the broader understanding of what it means. If you are existing under existing regulatory scrutiny, then the implications of the Act will be reduced unless you're in the higher risk categories. Because what the Act is trying to do is put in place some proper engineering discipline. So if you are already capable to explain to a regulator how your AI systems are working, they are documented appropriately, and you've got the right governance processes in place, that means that compliance will be significantly easier to demonstrate because in the EU, they're devolving enforcement of the Act to member states, which means that you will be interacting with your existing regulator, assuming your country enforces the regulator in the way that the AI Act proposes, opposed to building a separate centralized organization. But that does mean there is still a level of immaturity about how the act is going to be enforced in each of the member states. And the other challenge we have is AI skills are in short enough supply in the industry. So as we start to try and bring them into regulators, they're in even shorter supply. So we've got a particular skills challenge across the AI industry in general. And as we start to bring in complicated enforcement and regulation regimes, understanding how to apply them is going to get more complex. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been great to talk. And you can find more of the topics discussed in today's episode in the show notes. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of the show, which means it's time for This Week in History, a look at monumental events in the world of business and technology, which has changed our lives. And the clue last week was it's 1996, and this really helped us get down to music. Yeah, it was, of course, the patenting of the humble MP3 this week, all the way back in 1996. Now, there can't be many file formats which have lasted that long or had such a massive impact on the world. 
The technology created by the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany had been a long time coming. They began looking at digital music compression in the late 1970s and began work on what would become MP3 in 1987 and was awarded a patent in Germany in 1989, though the technology didn't work on consumer devices until 1994. But it was in 96 that the technology would reach the US and quickly attain world acceptance as a digital standard. The patents eventually expired in 2017, making the MP3 a free technology for all to use. And whilst others have come and gone, it's still pretty much seen as a standard digital audio format. And next week, the clue is, it's 1993, endeavor to hold on to your telescope. Do you know what it is? <laughs> well, keep it to yourself. And that brings us to the end of technology now for this week. A huge thank you to our guest, Matt Armstrong-Barnes. Matt, thank you for joining us. And of course, to our listeners, thank you all so much for joining us as well. Technology Now is hosted by Michael Bird and myself, Aubrey Lovell. This episode was produced by Sam Datapollin and Al Booth with production support from Harry Morton, Zoe Anderson, Alicia Kempson, Allison Paisley, Alyssa Mitri, Camilla Patel, Alex Podmore, and Chloe Sewell. Our social editorial team is Rebecca Wissinger, Judy Ann Goldman, Katie Guarino, and our social media designers are Alejandra Garcia, Carlos Alberto Suarez, and Ambar Maldonado. Technology Now is a Lower Street production for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, and we'll see you next week. Bye.